Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Deneau, and you're listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Bert Inglera, lecturer at the Institute of Development Policy and Management, University of Antwerp. He's also the co-editor of Genocide, Risk, and Resilience, an Interdisciplinary Approach. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Inside Rwanda's Gachacha Courts, Seeking Justice After Genocide, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Professor Ingeliara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, begin uh, by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself. Okay, so my name is uh, Bert. Um, I live in, in Belgium, as you mentioned. I'm a lecturer assistant professor at the University of Antwerp here in Belgium. Um, I studied uh, philosophy and anthropology at the University of Leuven. And I did my PhD in, uh, in development studies at the University of Andrew. Um, so, well, initially I studied uh, philosophy, but then I moved to, to anthropology, and that's also uh, where I got interested in what is also the topic of, of this current book and a number of other, of, of other publications that I have. Uh, well, the topic of violence and, and genocides and, and, of course, the legacy of violence and dealing with violence. Uh, so initially, after my studies, I uh, was sort of a, an assistant, um, teaching assistant researcher in philosophy, but I, I got interested in especially also the more ethnographic approach uh, in doing fieldwork, uh, and especially related to these topics. At some point, I actually got the opportunity to be included in a, a research project on Rwanda. Initially, I was not really interested in Africa. I thought maybe to end up in, in Latin America or something. Um, but, yeah, Rwanda, there was a research project interdisciplinary on the Rwanda genocides uh, with the objective to understand uh, how actually the genocide unfolded at, at the local level in a in very remote villages. 
So at that point, I managed to be included, and so I spent three months living on a Rwanda hill in a village. And at that point, I really got hooked, and so I wanted to continue uh, after the, the, that experience uh, doing research on on this topic and on this region and on this country. And so I managed then to be included in other research projects that eventually led to well, a long period of research on Rwanda's way of dealing with, uh, with the past, with its violent past, through uh, the Gachacha course. So since 2004, I've been doing research on Rwanda on a number of topics, and also I've done research on other countries in the region, on Burundi, a little bit on Eastern Congo. Uh, but most of my research between 2004 and 2014 uh, dealt with the legacy of violence in Rwanda. Uh, through uh, mainly the Gachacha course, uh, which is the, the topic of, of this book, of course. So essentially the book is sort of the, um, the final conclusion or the, the sort of the, the, well, the results of that research that took several years. Interesting. I think, and, yeah. Well, and as, as you noted uh, during our correspondence prior to the to the interview tomorrow uh, we're recording uh this interview on april 6th and uh april 7th is actually uh the the day that um uh that commemorates uh the rwandan uh genocide did you want to say anything about that yeah so indeed so it's actually a very symbolical time well sort of uh, a period for Rwanda that has a lot of meaning of course, today we are April 6th, which is a bit of a complicated date uh, in Rwandan history because uh, on April 6, 1994, uh, the plane of the president at the time, President Habyarimana, was shot down uh, when he returned from a regional summit meeting in, uh, in Tanzania. And so that was the start of, well, a three-month period um, of uh, killings, genocide against uh, the Tutsi population. Of course, all of that happened at the time in 1994 in a context of uh, civil war and a context of the introduction of multi-party democracy. Um, but every time of the year uh, in Rwanda and, of course, in uh, other regions, well, other places in the world, uh, there is the... the a moment, especially one week of mourning, of commemoration of uh, what happens uh, in Rwanda uh, during that period. And um, so this leads us, I think, uh, nicely into the um, into the early part of the book, right? You, your first chapter uh, is entitled From Genocide to Gachacha, and it actually uh, begins by talking about this 100-day uh, period that began uh, on April 6th. Uh, in which uh, estimates range from a half a million to a million uh, people were killed. Um, the in this chapter, you sort of talk about um, uh, the RPF, that is the Rwandan Patriotic Front, that took uh, took power in July of 1994, and thereby ending the genocide. Um, and and in taking power, they were able in in in, in the quite an unfettered way to set the post-genocide agenda, including uh, the implementation of 
of Gachata. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that, because I think there's a sort of popular countervailing narrative um, that suggests that Gachata sort of percolated up from the bottom of society and was sort of this manifestation of the will of the people. And uh, you suggest in this chapter that it uh, was largely the... um, uh, the will of the of the government um, of the post genocide government to uh, to implement uh, this method of of, uh, of justice. Uh, indeed, so that, that's actually well, in that first chapter that I provide a bit of historical background uh, to the net, well, the Rwandan conflict and also the let's say the decision or the process that led to the decision to adopt or to modernize the Gachacha. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, the genocide took place in the context of the civil war, where the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, actually in the, starting the 1st of October 1990, has invaded Rwanda. So the Rwandan Patriotic Front was mainly composed of, um, let's say, descendants of Rwandans who had fled uh, Rwanda earlier, that's in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, and made the majority of these people, well, the big majority of these, uh, well, the people that made up the RPF, were Tutsi. So Tutsi is the minority ethnic group in Rwanda, which is the majority. And so the, the period of decolonization in Rwanda, a uh, period of independence, was not only... Uh, well, a period of revolt against the colonial powers, but it was also a revolt against um, what at the time well, was sort of the ruling class, to, uh, and that mainly composed of, of Tutsi. So they had to flee Rwanda, who took, took over power, um, and that lasted like that until, let's say, the beginning of the 90s, until the descendants of uh, the minority group living outside of Rwanda managed to actually organized themselves and had attacked Rwanda. So a very complicated story. This also explains to a certain extent why um, the Tutsi instantly inside Rwanda were targeted during the genocide because they were seen as accomplices of the RPF who had attacked Rwanda. Um, so while the genocide was happening, the civil war restarted because it ended, well, it was a bit suspended because of peace agreements that were never implemented. And so eventually, on July 4, 1994, the RPF uh, actually yeah, took over power. So it led to a military victory uh, by the RPF, completely defeating the regime that had been in power, uh, dominated by Hutu. And so, of course, uh, let's say the modality of this political transition implies, and that's not only in Rwanda, but it's something you see everywhere in the world, the nature of the outcome of a, of a conflict will shape very much the nature of the transitional justice process that is going to follow. Uh, so it's not that there were two parties who had to negotiate about what they were going to do with the violence that had happened in the past. The RPF could set the agenda of how they were going to deal with uh, with the genocide, and of course also with the civil war. Um, and so actually the years following the genocides, reconciliation was absolutely not on the table. It was a taboo subject. 
um, what the RPF wanted was accountability. So everyone uh, that had done something during the genocide had to be held accountable for what he or she had done. Because after a conflict, of course, there are a number of options, there are a number of mechanisms available. Um, of course, tribunals, um, something we know since even when it started after the Second World War with the Nuremberg uh, trials. Uh, then you had more, let's say, the, the, the approach of a truth commission that we saw in Latin America and, of course, South Africa. And then, of course, during that period also, um, but, of course, trials, um, you, you had a number of uh, international criminal tribunals, uh, for instance, uh, for, for ex-Yugoslavia. Um, but these normally go for the big fish. So it's only the main commanders, the political leaders that are actually put on trial. Very expensive uh, procedures. And the RPF wanted to actually prosecute everyone who had done something in the genocide. And again, this is comes with uh, the fact that there was a military overthrow. And of course, it's just is also a very political process. Uh, it, it makes sense, or it's also... Um, well, a political decision to prosecute, well, uh, the, the, your enemy, huh? mm-hmm. uh, and especially to make sure that you yourself, as a victor, doesn't get, don't get uh, prosecuted, don't, you, that you don't go to, need to go on trial. Um, so it's also, I mean, that definitely influenced uh, the decision. Of course, and that's also a bit how it was argued that. Uh, the genocide that against Tutsi that happened in 1994 actually was built on a long process of impunity of uh, crimes that were committed in Rwandan history, going back to the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. There was never have, never had been any process of uh, dealing with these issues, and so from the point of view of the RPF, it was also needed to establish. Uh, well, to make sure that there was a break with this culture of impunity and every single individual had done something, had to be somehow held all accountable in order, of course, uh, to prevent the recurrence of these things in the, in, in the future. Um, so there were a number of options considered, but uh, and they were actually starting from this policy, everyone who has done something needs to be put on trial. It was very complicated because if, and there are these days, there are many actually very informative and, and um, in, insightful studies that uh, an, analyze how the genocide actually happened. And what is very puzzling about the Rwandan case is that normally these types of killings, uh, mass violence, is executed by specialists in violence, <laughs> militias, the military. Uh, but in the Rwandan case, the problem is that through a number of dynamics that are or that are very complex, but um, very many ordinary people got involved in hunting down and killing, eventually uh, or stealing property of their own neighbors. Um, so after the genocide, there were already one hundred thirty thousand people in prison, 
And so if you, you know, based on calculations, how long would it take to prosecute these people? And also in the context of uh, just the system after the genocide that was completely destroyed, it would take over 100 years. So they had to find a different way. And at some point, the idea to use the gachacha um, was introduced, was debated, mainly among, of course, the, let's say, the elites who took over at the time, which maybe is the RPF and a number of lawyers. Um, and so the, the, the idea of the gachacha, since pre-colonial times, had been a dispute resolution conflict um, that had always been used at the very local level of society. So Gachacha means justice on the grass. Actually, it refers to a, a, a plant, so grass that is so soft to sit on that uh, people actually prefer to gather on that spot because it's soft. And so in pre-colonial times, um, the head of the lineages, when there was a conflict in society, they, in order to prevent that hatred would linger on, um, uh, actually tried to bring people together and um, decide on how to deal with the conflict. The conflict could have been uh, someone from a certain lineage has stolen a cow or um, something else, minor disputes, how are you going to deal with this? And the idea was never, or the objective was never um, punishment or truth or things like that, but to restore harmony. Um, and that happens in something that became known as gachacha. And of course, the gachacha evolved over time as any institution. Uh, during the colonial period, there was actually a Western type of justice system that was introduced. Uh, and the gachacha roles that gachacha had uh, changed a little bit. For instance, more important crimes, more um, severe crimes, now had to be dealt with in uh, the Western type of um, legal system. But at the local level, the gachacha continued to be used to deal with minor conflicts in the population and to restore harmony. Um, and actually also after the genocides, there are a number of reports that illustrate that immediately after the genocide, when actually the, the justice system was completely destroyed, that the gachacha was spontaneously solicited, solicited to, but especially to deal with, uh, to gather some information on what had happened during the genocide, and especially to deal with property crimes, so people who had destroyed things or who had stolen things. So, but all of this eventually led to the idea, okay, we want to have, we have so many people involved, we want to prosecute, so hold people accountable. Um, so let's try to modernize, so not use the gachacha as it existed, but use this idea of a sort of justice system that is completely decentralized in local villages. Mm -hmm. That is what we're going to do. We're going to modernize this gachacha and we're going to put people on trial on the place there in these well, places, in the villages, where they have actually committed crimes of genocide, crimes uh, against humanity. So that was then around the year 2000, um, something that has been adopted and then codified into law, and then eventually after some pilot phases, 
um, was implemented nationwide in 2005. And you you go into some some detail uh, about this sort of um, I guess division of of labor between uh, the parallel courts, the gachacha courts, um, and ordinary courts in terms of what they uh, were respectively um, responsible for as this process um, unfolded. Is there anything that you wanted to say about about that, about the specific sort of mechanics? Yeah. So the, well, the, the modernization of the gachacha is based actually on three cornerstones. So by design, the law, there are three, let's say, main ideas. One is the confession uh, procedure. So the confession procedure basically means that a per- well, uh, someone alleged who has committed crimes uh, can receive a, reduc- a reduction in the sentencing if he or she confesses. This was based on the idea that there was actually no or very little let's say, uh, material evidence of crimes committed. So we, and of course, there was not the typical machinery of, uh, let's say, investigators making a case. So all of this you know, had to be done in a different way. And the basic idea was that people would actually confess to their crimes in return of a reduction of uh, punishment. So um, the... Another principle was this popularization. So this is basically the old gachacha where lay judges, so people who had uh, no legal, uh, let's say, training, uh, who are actually simply inhabitants of the villages where the trials are going on, um, are presiding the the proceedings. Um, And so this, this is based on, well, they are chosen by the population based on the idea on the idea of being integrity, so being a sort of living according to morally high standards. And then the last, let's say, principle is the categorization. So that, that's what you were referring to. Um, so there were uh, different levels of trials going on uh, based on the nature of the crime or the alleged crime committed. So for instance, uh, they made they differentiated people or crimes. They, but if you were, had been someone who had incited to commit genocide, uh, who or when you had committed rape, so more severe crimes. Um, they these people who had confessed or were accused of these types of crimes would actually not be dealt with in Gachacha, but would go to the ordinary justice system. And then other types of crimes, so people who had killed or had been involved in killing, would deal with what is referred to as sector gachacha. So a sector is actually similar to what is a village. And then there there were a number of categories uh, ranging from well-known murderers, ordinary killers, uh, or people who had been involved in attacks but did not have had the intention to kill. And then there was a last category that was actually taking place at the cell level and the cell is like a neighborhood in a village. Um, And these um, tribunals, or these dimensions of gachacha, um, dealt with property offenses. Uh, So the the gachacha basically had two dimensions to it. So the sector gachacha dealt with crimes committed 
against humans, and then the Sangha Chacha uh, dealt with um, property crimes. And so it depended on um, whether you had confessed and when, um, and what type of crime you had committed. So then the law stipulates uh, the range of penalties that could be handed out by the lay judges. Uh, and they had a small margin of maneuver to decide on, you know, if you're in this category and you have confessed, then we can give you either 20 or 24 years. If you're in a different type of category, in this type of court, you can, we can give you, and you have confessed to your crime. You, for instance, it could give you 8 to 11 years. Um, so, but of course, this was the idea. Um, but the system remained, so these three principles uh, continue to be relevant for the gachacha throughout the period that gachacha was operational, uh, but the law changed a couple of times, uh, especially also because once gachacha, the process uh, started to be, well, was, became operational in 2005, which in the first phase was information collection phase, where actually, uh, yeah, at the local level in the villages, one first tried to compile the files against individuals based on, ideally, confessions, because that was the idea. Um, and then they would go to a, a second phase, the trial phase. But based on once the process started, it turned out that so many people actually started to be uh, accused of having committed crimes, so were suddenly accused. So that there was a shift from the idea of people will confess to accusations, so, and also that increased dramatically the number of people accused in Gachatra. So over the years, I saw these number rise, numbers rise. So at some points, there were 850,000 cases, and then uh, eventually, um, at the end of Gachacha, the official closing ceremony was in 2012. Almost 2 million cases actually had been processed by the Gachacha courts. So throughout the country, there were, um, well, thousands of trials operating. And in the process of a couple of years, they actually processed about 1 million people, most of them at the cell level with, uh, well, the the property offences, um, but quite a number, of course, um, so um, actually uh, cases of, of manslaughter, of uh, crimes committed against humans. Uh, but these numbers are extraordinary. And of course, it would mean, especially since most actually were accused, that many people would actually need to return to prison. And one of the reasons why Gachacha was actually introduced um, was that they wanted to empty the prisons. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, they had to change the system while it was working, so the gachacha laws, uh, shifting more people to lower categories, introducing or giving a pro more prominent role to community service for people uh, convicted of crimes, and then also introducing the sort of the suspension of the, of the sentence. So, but this was basically the modernization of the gachacha was the discategorization according to crime. The fact that gachacha could deal with you know, crimes of genocide, it, the old gachacha, so to speak, had only dealt with minor disputes in the population. 
Uh, and then these ideas of the confession and uh, the popularization that, um, uh, of, of the process throughout uh, society. So these were the main principles. Yeah, and so, and here I think it's it's really important to uh, to, to sort of underscore uh, that uh, your sort of stated objective in this book is to address this discrepancy between what uh, Gachacha was supposed to do, right, in in this sort of in its design, this modernized uh, Gachacha, and what it actually uh, did, right, and and sort of in the introduction you sort of talk about um, the fact that you really can't. Uh, um, convey what modern Gachacha accomplished by focusing on the goals, and the goals were um, were widely publicized uh, by the um, by the government, by uh, donors, uh, uh, by NGOs, and so on. Um, uh, including, the, I thought it was very interesting. You, you sort of discussed uh, the role of uh, public relations and a PR firm in sort of promulgating. Uh, these sort of ideals, and um, but I, I just think that that's this is a good this is a good moment to underscore that you're that you're really trying to address this um, this discrepancy uh, in the book. Um, something else that I in in, in so doing right so continuing with this um, with the with the discrepancy. Talk in the third chapter um, a lot about this idea of the uh, what was supposed to be um, a confessional model was actually uh, operating according to prosecutorial adversarial logic and 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 in point of fact, uh, Gachacha actually was uh, uh, retributive at its core. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of, um, talk about that, um, and, and, and I guess maybe more specifically talk about that in the, in terms of your, your actual field work and, and research, which, uh, was conducted in a, in a very fraught, um, fraught con- context, um, uh, with certain, with certain constraints. Um, yes, so. Maybe to combine with, with what you said uh, earlier on, on, let's say, at least one of the, the objectives of the book is indeed that the outcomes of the gachacha, the modern gachacha, remain contested. So what gachacha actually did, what it was, uh, there has been there has been a lot of attention to it, uh, precisely because it has been, a, let's say, a new, or it was presented as a new model of dealing with with the past, something that was more... Uh, culturally appropriate, customary based. Um, but the problem is, as as you said, that um, the objectives of Gachacha are what initially Gachacha or the modern Gachacha was supposed to do. The objectives are now, when Gachacha is over, simply presented as the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, meaning that it had to increase, well, accelerate legal proceedings that had to eradicate culture of impunity, reconcile Rwandans, establish the truth, administer justice based on Rwandan custom. So all of these, if you listen to um, Rwandan officials, uh, but also a number of academics, they simply equate these objectives with the outcomes. And I think there's something missing there, and that's really 
an empirically uh, informed investigation, so to speak. And that's something that I'm uh, actually trying, well, that I'm doing in, in the book or that I did in my research. And then I question a number or most of these um, objectives or the fact that these objectives are also the outcomes. What is true, and that's what I, what I already uh, said, is one objective is without any doubt reached to the fullest, namely accelerating the legal proceedings. So in a very short time span, there is like almost 2 million cases being dealt with. Never ever in anywhere in history uh, something like that has been done. What remains to be examined for is the quality of the trials and what the Gachacha actually did. And so that's what I try to do um, based on also uh, a combination of research techniques. So over 32 months, I've spent uh, in the Rwandan countryside observing systematically almost 2,000 Gachacha trials. So I took a more ethnographic approach living there, trying also to understand uh, the context of the trials uh, in several places, because often also there, there are quite some studies on gachacha, but some of them have been conducted in one place or at a specific moment in time. And so gachacha actually had some variation depending on the place and depending on the moment when the trials, trials were taking place. So I tried to include all of that in order to well, to the, to the extent or to the best of my possibilities to come to a more comprehensive insight in what Kachacha actually was. And so one of the things that I definitely, based on that, uh, let's say, systematic empirical approach, because not only in the case of Rwanda, but actually in what is called transitional justice in general, so dealing with the violence of the past, law, what is being said or assumed based on normative ideas and little is being done on based on data-driven and evidence. And that's what I tried in the case of Rwanda and in the book to make a com- contribution, um, trying to identify what Katacha actually was and what it actually accomplished. And one of the claims or one of my insights is that with this Gachacha, modern Gachacha, um, when people hear about it, it's the idea of yeah, a very restorative type of justice. People gather on their oldest tree in the village and they talk a bit and then they leave on. Um, but that was not what it was. It was a very uh, fictional uh, experience, but that should not be a surprise because, of course, they're dealing with very delicate um well, experiences. Um, But the way they did it, uh, it was very retributive. Um, It was a mixture of things, but the modernization of the gachacha changed the initial logic of what gachacha used to be in the past. So the idea of the old gachacha had always been to restore social harmony in the population. And what the new gachacha did was actually, and that's also in one of the chapters, chapter four, where I actually analyzed the experience of um, dealing with gachacha or participating in gachacha. 
uh, through a number of techniques, and I also refer to other studies who have been conducted, mm-hmm. is that um, the introduction of Gachacha in Rwandan society, in my data, in my, uh, let's say, observations, but also in other studies, there's clearly an increase in uh, trauma, an increase in fear, an increase in distrust, a polarization of society, actually along, especially in the beginning, often along ethnic lines, so Hutu against Tutsi. So, because you need to understand that, as I said, there was a shift from confession to accusation. Mm-hmm. So imagine we are in a court, well, anywhere, not even in a court situation, but imagine I have committed a crime and I confess, and you are the victim, and I confess to my crime, right? Or I deny that I've done something and you accuse me. This is a totally different atmosphere, mm-hmm. a totally different type of relationship. And you need to understand this is not in a courtroom where you have security forces nearby and afterwards where you go home in a totally different area of a city or of, a, of, 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 of the country, but where people are actually neighbors. Mm-hmm. So um, the way Gachacha had to operate, so if you analyze the trial and I've, 2,000 transcripts that I analyzed. It's all about the forensic truth. It's who did where, what, and when, um, and with whom. Um, And so it's a very typical crime, uh, typical criminal approach, where many people actually were accused, um, but in a very localized situation where... The next day, it's people need to go to the market together, or where they, if someone is sick, they need to be transported. So, and that's also then later in the book what I analyze why uh, Gachacha unfolds or created the outcomes that, that it actually created. Um, but the, especially in the initial stages, um, the experience of Gachacha was very, let's say, negative. This also actually got better over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. One, as I already said, so the institutional framework, the laws of Gachacha changed over time because too many people were sent to prison, but also because the governments saw that this created problems in the population. At some point, there were thousands of people fleeing to Burundi, afraid of Gachacha. Mm-hmm. So they could not uh, continue doing this. Uh, um, so they had to reduce, let's say, the, the retributive uh, approach uh, that, or the more retributive logic of the gachacha. Mm-hmm. And over time, and that's also something that you see in these, uh, well, in my, let's say, uh, insights, in my findings, is that gachacha also became a more pos- positive experience for many people. Um, let's say that the outcome is... Um, is actually mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Gachacha did something for some people at some point, um, and often for people at different stakes in Gachacha, um, near the ends, Hutu who had been accused, who had done something in the genocide, were actually um, well happy that they through Gachacha that they could leave prison because many of them had spent years in prison, mm-hmm. pre-trial detention without any. You know, 
someone dealing with their case, so they could actually get out of prison because of uh, Gachacha. Um, some survivors have found um, some consolation, uh, some dimensions of the pardoning, the, the reconciliation that came through Gachacha. Not even what they did in Gachacha, but the fact that Gachacha brought people together in the community, uh, in a sort of ritual way, coming together every week, um, actually did something for some people. Um, so the outcome is quite mixed. So also many Hutu continue to consider to get Gachacha to be a yeah, sort of institutionalized in, injustice. It depends again on the place and the time. Uh, many trials actually completely did not, um, well, did not have the legal safeguards of uh, due process and other things, which means that yeah, still I've seen trials where I could not, I could not understand the conclusion, how the judges have actually reached the conclusion to judge someone um, with a, so that there was no reasonable doubt to come to that conclusion. Uh, either acquitting someone or convicting someone. Mm -hmm. So it was a very um, in, imperfect procedure. Um, yeah, and that's, um, that is, the sort of mixed success is a... Um, is a so that, uh, make it, yeah, the conclusion, I have to say, um, and also, of course, and that was the idea, so that's what I wanted to do. My thinking or my insights evolved over time, and it now, I hope, comprehensively uh, presented in this book, um, taking into account also the variables of space and time. Um, there is some, some yeah, mixed, uh, let's say, conclusions about uh, the outcomes of Gachacha. Um, um, but in any case, so what I, what I try to do is to question this, you know, these cornerstones, the confessions of popularization and the, the categorization, and then for instance, regarding the, the main objectives of uh, Gachacha, um, whether a culture, of, if, if we analyze it through these lenses, which I don't do systematically in the booklets, I mean, chapter by chapter, but of course it is throughout the different chapters. One of the things that I question, for instance, also is whether a culture of impunity has been eradicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important point. Can you, um, can you say... Uh, more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the throughout the, the book and uh, so in a number of chapters, um, I try to analyze so why the, the Gachacha actually unfolded the way it unfolded. And, and one of the things that I identify is that, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, is that the, the genocide against Tutsi happened in the context of the civil war. Uh, so the RPF was... Uh, well, actually at war with the regime at the time, and this is a, well, a civil war in overpopulated countries, so there's lots of people who have been killed during the civil war, also by the RPF, who is currently in power. And in all the trials that I observed, there's never been anyone um, actually being put on trial for war crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there were these war crimes, but there were also revenge killings by Tutsi civilians uh, following the genocide. None of these people have been prosecuted. And again, it depends on where you actually were doing the gachacha, so to speak. There are, there are villages where this did not happen. Mm -hmm. 
There are villages, especially in the north, where these happen at a large scale. And for us, we have the bigger picture of the history, let's so to speak, and the, the severity of crimes that for an ordinary peasant and for one I still a society of mainly um, farmers, uh, subsistence farmers, who live somewhere in a village, um, you only know what happened to you and what happened to your village. And so it's difficult to understand why certain crimes are being dealt with and other crimes not. So definitely the Gachacha dealt with genocide and the genocide against Tutsi. But in theory, the scope or the competence of the law also left room to deal with war crimes. But systematically, um, people, yeah, it's difficult. And then we get to the dynamics that I also analyze in the book is why are these crimes being excluded? So Mm -hmm. that's what I did based on the years that I did this observation. Because many people think that authorities or the current regime actually, well, they just intervened in the trials, but it was a much more, to, for instance, exclude these types of crimes, but it was a much more complicated process. So in the book, I also analyze how, let's say, the power structure that is currently in place, how people have actually internalized these ideas of what is currently true and what is not true, what is just and what is not just. And through a range of mechanisms, um, through a range of things that have been installed in Rwandan society, going over uh, speeches by dignitaries that that are being conducted uh, every week, so to speak, in villages, over re-education camps, uh, certain also violent reactions at times, putting people in prison people actually have um, developed a sort of rehearsed consensus on what is true and what is not true. Mm-hmm. And it's very much influenced what people dare to say in Gachacha and what they did not say in Gachacha. Mm-hmm. So that explains, for instance, why a certain number of trial, uh, crimes are not being dealt with uh, in the Gachacha. And of course, this means that, yes, the culture of impunity has been dealt with to a certain extent, but on the other hand, there's another type of impunity that now has been introduced precisely because of genocide, an impunity for war crimes. And I don't want to equate war crimes with genocide. It's something totally right. different. The, and, and I think that, that I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because you do talk about, um, it's important to make that distinction precisely because you talk about a systematic or a systemic rather tendency to find uh, defendants guilty of genocide, um, crimes of genocide, but innocent of war crimes. And so if you could make that um, distinction uh, uh, clearer, that I think would, uh, would be helpful. <clears throat> well, yeah, genocide, well, the crimes of genocide mainly means that um, it's a, genocide, well, legally speaking, means that there is the intention to destroy in whole or in part um, the members of a certain group. Um, and that was what happened indeed during the, well, during these months, these 100 days in 1994. The, I mean, for me, there's no doubt that there was a project that was a clear, some people question this, I don't. Mm-hmm. There was a clear project to exterminate the Tutsi as a group at the time. Uh, but war crimes is, yeah, 
there, there's, and that's more on the side of Hutu, there's been a number of Hutu who have been killed uh, during this period because they were actually friends of Tutsi or because they were actually part of the political opposition at the time. So actually considered to be um, more supportive of the RPF mm-hmm. um, at the time. But there is also Hutu uh, after the genocide who, or let's say before 1994, especially in the north, there, there have been reports that during the civil war, the RPF was in combat with the Rwandan army, actually also um, killed a number of Hutu civilians. So all of these is actually war crimes or political crimes. The, the idea was not to exterminate the Hutu as a group, but it, but it's still, um, but it's, it's still a sort of well, it, these are crimes. Um, in theory, Kachacha could deal with these things. In practice, it never did. And um, well, the Rwandan authorities could say, well, yeah, they, you could go to the ordinary courts to deal with these things, but. In all the places where I did research, well, mo- well, these types of things happened. And I, when I asked around, people would never go to the ordinary courts to deal with this because they know they will never find, well, they will not be considered serious. These are the things that mm-hmm. are not being uh, dealt with. These, these are the things that are being silenced in Rwanda society. Of course, they talked about in private between like-minded people. So that's what I say, of course, this is another type of impunity that currently is lingering on in Rwandan society and uh, it remains somewhere in the hearts of the people. And if it, again, it introduces a sort of um, a distinction between people or, and I'm not saying this myself, but I'm analyzing the discussions and the, uh, I had and the observations that, yeah, this idea of being different, Hutu and Tutsi, is being reinforced by uh, these types of, let's say, um, state-imposed ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Well, and and that's so. Th- there are a couple of um, very interesting things there. One of the things that you just touched on, um, going to detail in the sixth chapter, where you talk about uh, Rwandans adopting a strategic stance toward uh, Gachacha and really, um, and which, which in part belies this notion of, um, of, you know, popular participation and, um, and a confessional, um, ideal, uh, among other, other things that you've discussed, but it also sort of looks forward, I think, to, uh, to what you discussed at, toward the end, well, actually throughout the book, but also, um, but focus on, uh, toward the end, which is sort of this idea of, of, uh, truth, right. Um, of, um, and you actually use, I think sort of a typology of, of truth that the, um, the South African truth and reconciliation, um, uh, commission had, um, had used, right. So, uh, whether it's forensic truth, which you've already, um, sort of discussed, but, um, looking to see um, these other dimensions of the truth, the narrative, social, and, and restorative um, that go beyond um, um, these factual accounts of, of things that actually happened. I wonder if you could uh, sort of uh, discuss that a bit, a bit more in terms of, uh, again, the, the, 
the field work that you did, your uh, research methods, including observation and, and, um, and other mixed methods approaches. Indeed. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so the, the, let's say the topic of the truth is actually something that's, that is a recurring theme throughout the book. Um, also because given the approach that I adopted, which is more inductive, uh, trying but having, let's say, insights emerge from say, the, the data, the, the insights, um, I noticed that the truth was a very important but very complicated issue in Gachacha. And I think beyond the Rwandan case as well, what happened in the Gachacha can help us to, to understand the complexities of truth in general, but in a transitional justice context uh, anywhere else in the world. And as you pointed out, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the reports, uh, South African reports, um, actually identified a number of different types of truths. So we are most mainly familiar with the forensic truth, which basically is who did what, where, and when. This is also a bit the idea of the scientific truth, or it's the typical legal type of truth. But of course, the Truth Commission, that's also why it's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it has different types of truth, and the South African Commission identified the narrative dimension, which basically is more the subjective experience, the meaning attached to social truth, which is the truth embedded in social relationships. So all of that is interesting, but um, but my experience with Gachacha or my insights point out, um, and that is precisely a bit more, of course, based on the extensive interviews I did, but also based on the observations that I, by living there, is that there were different types of truth that play in Gachacha. So, of course, the design of Gachacha, what Gachacha was supposed to accomplish by design was the forensic truth. So that's why it's also very um, prosecutorial, adversarial, retributive approach. But there were other types of truth at play, and one of that is what I refer to as a truth with a capital T, which basically is what I explained earlier, namely how the current political context very much influences what can be said and what cannot be said. And this is a, not only a Rwandan phenomenon, of course, there, there have been analysis, uh, something that what Foucault has actually introduced, the idea of regimes of truth. So there are political context, power situations, which makes him uh, sound as true. I mean, it's also a bit going on everywhere else in the world, just uh, the idea of make, having your trying to get your alternative facts uh, try and pass as truths, um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, and then there's what I refer to as the effectual truth is also a sort of a pragmatic type of truth. What I saw um, people do in the gachacha, um, and. We often do not consider pragmatic types of truths, but it basically means that truth is that which is actually the most useful in the given circumstances. So the pragmatic truth is also a sort of a theory of truth. Um, 
the, which basically means that you know if we consider something to be true if it gets things done if it works. And mm-hmm. um, many people in Gachacha actually this is how they approach Gachacha. So both from the side of the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators and the victims, given the particular situation they were in, um, many of these people accused of having done something um, have, or people who were in prison actually calculated or looked at the best ways of getting out of this process mm-hmm. with, you know, to increase their own well-being in the short and in the long run. And what their well-being was is not necessarily finding justice or the, or the, the truth, the actual truth of what happened. So it's about navigating the system to get the optimal outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be getting out of prison, but it also could mean making sure that I'm not um, being socially excluded in my community here. Mm-hmm. Or that I, which often from the side of the victims was a sort of uh, an approach they had to adopt because often these are women who lost their family and um, yeah, we're in an African village where the more hands you have in the in the family, the more you actually can advance in your, your life. Uh, you need to have someone who goes to fetch water, who, help, who helps you in uh, working in the fields and they have lost all of that. Mm-hmm. And so now they need to rely on their neighbors of some who are family members with maybe perpetrators. So they make very pragmatic choices of, you know, it's not going to, you know, telling the truth here in Gachacha. Uh, it's, you know, the real truth, so to speak, the objective truth, the forensic truth. Um, it's not going to help me. I'm going to let this pass and I, maybe I get some compensation from the family of the perpetrator that will help me in my current situation that I'm living in. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that these people don't want justice, but they have to take very pragmatic dis- decisions. And to a certain extent also, this, this for them, this is can be justice, not you know, going to prison, but giving something back. And that's also what I saw. And then we go back to the, the initial logic of the gachacha, the old gachacha, so to speak, that was more the restoration of harmony that often happened through a sort of um, a gift. Um, you give something and that's through that you try to reestablish the relationship. And so these trials dealing with property cases, on the one hand, they were the most difficult often because there was really a lot of stake at stake. Um, but also the most promising if it really worked out because promising in terms of re-establishing social relationships between people because there was actually a sort of uh, an exchange that had a symbolic meaning to it um, that resonated well with ideas or images existing in Rwandan culture and going back also on, let's say, the foundations of of the old Gachacha. Um, yeah, so, I, okay. Yeah, and then maybe the last, yeah, to, to come back to, if I may, the, because this is also then another dimension of the truth that I analyze, and that's what I'm referring to as the moral truths. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so one of the things that I also observed by closely analyzing the transcripts and paying attention to the language um, is that Rwandans speak in a specific way about the experience of the violence and how to deal with it, often referring to very complicated, complex concepts like umutima, which basically means, well, could be translated as heart, but um, it's a very complicated concept and it refers to the idea of the person, uh, the individual, the self. And what they want to see is actually what they often say is that the heart has changed, which basically means that an individual has changed, so the moral character of someone has changed because of the, the violence he or she has committed or he or she has experienced. And they want this to change the moral character. They want to have seen, I well, signs that someone is actually changing again. And what can be these signs? Often these are things that have that are in line with, as I said, ideas in the Rwandan culture. Um, there are tokens of sharing beer, uh, providing a helping hand, being invited to a ceremony, um, an exchange of goods. These are all signs of the moral, let's say, qualities of people. And of course, these also happened to a certain extent in Gachacha, but to a great extent, Gachacha, because it was um, modernized and the logic changed, to a great extent, went against the grain of these, let's say, ideas of what justice is and what the, the person is and how we can establish reconciliation. That's really, um, the, yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. And I think that uh, you do discuss, I, I should point out for the benefit of listeners, that you do discuss uh, sort of these complex complex and evolving notions of personhood um, in some detail in the book, and that's a, that's a very important point. I think I was also struck by this idea of, of um, again, the strategic uh, positioning vis-a-vis the truth, right, this uh, practical approach that, that I think mirrors, um, uh, that's mirrored, rather, in, in your approach to, uh, to, your, to your research um, which you actually aligned with um, with Aristotelian the Aristotelian notion of phronesis, which I thought was very interesting. Again, sort of um, uh, practical and pragmatic um, pragmatic turn. And I, I wonder if um, uh, we could sort of begin um, begin a conclusion of our discussion by talking about um, about precisely that why you, you took uh, this approach. Um, and if I may, I'll, I'll quote directly from the book where you, uh, where you say, in the aftermath of mass violence and in times of transitional justice, the field is riddled uh, with a range of obstacles that demand a practical understanding of how to navigate the terrain. Um, so if you talk about that and, and, um, and also what, uh, what sort of lies uh, beyond um, uh this particular case in terms of uh, transitional um, transitional uh, justice uh, beyond Rwanda, the Rwandan case? Mm-hmm. Um, well, starting with, let's say, the approach and indeed the, the problem that after violence and in the context of uh, transitional justice process, it's, it is, of course, complicated um, to, to 
gather uh, trustworthy insights um, precisely because it's a, you're often in a very fragile um, environment. Um, of course, every context is a bit different, but I can imagine that it's very similar in uh, similar situations around the world where uh, people have gone through extreme violence. Um, it means, of course, that uh, people are very careful in what they're saying to whom. Um, and this has implications for research, of course. Um, not only the violence, but often also the political situation um, influences uh, what people are can say. And um, for the Rwandan case, this is definitely also an issue, which is a pretty authoritarian environment um, at this point um, for a number of reasons, but which basically means, of course, also that, and it's all of these also analyzing where, where I provide a bit of context to understand or to give an idea of the context in which the Qatar tried to operate. Um, but all of that has implications on how you go about doing research. Um, and for me, um, while I adopted a number of, let's say, principles, um, as I already hinted at the fact that I wanted to, uh, let's say, have a, an insight in the process, the evolution over time, which meant continuous observations of Gachacha in several places, uh, but also the issue of process, I tried to get at it through live story interviewing. And the live story interview was also interesting. And it's, well, I did that in a systematic way because the live story is also a sort of an indirect way that people talk about, um, well, sensitive issues in the context of Rwanda or complicated legacy of violence. If you would ask them very direct questions of what do you think about, you know, the other IT group and things like that, and yeah, you get politically correct answers. Um, another approach was, of course, being there. Uh, so I tried to establish rapport, trust with these people by returning several times over several years where they saw that the nature of our interactions that we had had earlier and what they had said that there were no consequences. I was also very careful in uh, making sure that um, yeah, there would no, did not be negative, uh, let's say, repercussions for people or that I would introduce a sort of conflictual dynamic between people by using information I had from someone. So it's all walking on X a little bit. And then another thing is, the, let's say, the combination of different research techniques for instance, given this type of context, if you would do survey research at a very large scale um, with a typical survey approach and survey questions, of course, I'm not saying it's not impossible, but it can be a bit problematic depending on how you do it, how you introduce yourself in the field, who is doing the actual interviews, what the nature of the questions is. Um, so there I try to combine a range of techniques from 
as I said, being there, observation, systematic observation of trials, interviews, but also survey techniques, and in a way that, uh, on the one hand, somehow certain techniques informs, let's say, the, the, the construction or the elaboration of other techniques or approaches. Sometimes I did very unstructured, let's say, data gathering. Sometimes I did it in a very structured way. And the combination of all of that, I think, provides a, a more layered, more complex um, insights in, let's say, all the dynamics going on. Uh, beyond Rwanda, um, well, I think what the Gachacha experience uh, shows, um, of course, that there has been, I mean, we should be realistic about it, transitional justice, dealing with the past is always going to be a very painful process and unfortunately always going to be uh, imperfect. Um I don't think there's a very an ideal solution uh, to uh, approach possible. Of course, there were high hopes for something like the Gachacha. Um, as I said, initially the model was tribunals, then you had, let's say, the model of the Truth Commission, and then there were these more cultural approaches, very localized way of doing things. Um, and Gachacha is often being presented as you know, the example of, of, uh, of such an approach. Um, I think what we should learn, of course, and, and there is a lot of attention to the local, uh, going local in, in transitional justice, in peace building, and, um, but we should be aware that the local is not some kind of a romantic place where... Uh, where everything is always nice and good. Um, I think in the, the in the book and the way people approach the Chacha is uh, I show that there's lots of also very strategic, um, let's say, things going on. Uh, not um, In terms of the Gachacha, um, beyond Gachacha, it also shows that it's actually difficult to to modernize something traditional. I mean, if I put in a very simple way like this, uh, any type of intervention will make something into something new, which is not necessarily better. Right. Um, so the idea of the gachacha is that it definitely did bring together two worlds, the traditional conflict resolution mechanism and it did bring together the modern legal system and some of the ideas that exist in the global justice system. And, but I think also, the, so and the idea is automatically that this then becomes something better. But it doesn't have to be like that. It can also bring, you know, the worst of two worlds together. So the Gachacha also shows that, for instance, what I think was a strength of the old gachacha was this conciliation, the restoration of harmony, but that was not there anymore, or it was there to a lesser degree. And what is the strength of the modern legal system? It's the safeguards of due process, and that was not there either in the gachacha. So um, 
I am also like a teacher. I have to do so many things at the same time. Uh, hold people accountable, bring reconciliation, establish the truth. These are all very complicated things, and it's very difficult for one mechanism to do all these things at once. Okay. Uh, these are very contradictory objectives at times, so I'm also more in favor for a more, let's say, complementary approach where not one mechanism needs to do everything at, this, at once. Right. Of course, this happened to a certain extent in, in Rwanda as well. You also had the, tri- uh, the criminal tribunal for Rwanda um, dealing with the big fish uh, in the ocean. Um, but still, I think Rwanda uh, could also have had a general truth commission that dealt with other types of truth than the forensic truth. Um, or you have different um, projects going on in Rwanda as well, or that I see everywhere else around the world, um, that are more in line with, say, the really cultural logics of people that are that are really based on ideas of local ideas of personhoods. Um, and I think the combination of all these different things to um, can be more productive in uh, in a society uh, that deals with violence. And, and generally speaking, also this implies um, a step further than looking at culturally appropriate mechanisms or institutions or local institutions. Actually, we need to examine better the ideas of what justice means in different societies, what the law actually means, what the living law is of a society, what truth is, what reconciliation is. So, um, again, this this does not imply um, that sometimes the argument you get when, when, you, when you want to pay attention to more cultural, let's say, meanings or um, that, yeah, you, you should be aware that we don't essentialize people and practice right. like, their cultures. That's true, but um, it doesn't have to apply an, an essential way of looking at people. Uh, but we cannot deny that people are somehow as clear, before Geertz at some point uh, said it, they're, they're, they're not trapped in the cultural cage, but they are suspended in a web of meaning. So... We should better understand these meanings, what it means to be, to find justice, to seek truth, what truth means in different contexts. Um, so I think that that's actually the paradox of the of the Gachacha and the Rwanda case, because it's often seen as something that is very much uh, adapted to the, the cultural context, where my claim is that it actually went against the grain of this cultural context in a certain way. Uh, and I think there's more to be done there in a genuine understanding of uh, um, of the cultural or let's say the, the foundations of what it means to live together, what justice means in different societies that try to deal with um, with the legacy of violence. Well, I think that that is a um, really uh, great summary of the of the book's project. And I, I really, again, uh, appreciate you uh, coming on today to discuss it with me. Um, can you let us know what you are currently working on or if you have any um, upcoming projects? 
Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm working on a number of things. So, of course, it's a bit, on the one hand, um, a bit of continuation of, let's say, this topic or this theme, but then broader. Um, so I'm, I've also been doing uh, fieldwork in a systematic way in Burundi, which is a neighboring country of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar um, history, ethnic makeup, unfortunately also violent history. For the moment, it's also in a crisis. And so I've been collecting systematically both in Rwanda and Burundi, um, also over time and through a number of techniques, insights in, let's say, the, the long-term transformation of um, the experience of trust, of fear, security, um, ideas of political representation mm -hmm. by people who have actually gone through um, this experience of violence. So in the long run, what are actually the ways that if and how do people start to trust each other again? Um, what happens with feelings of security or fear? So that's something I'm analyzing now, but comparing Rwanda and Burundi in a, in a systematic way, and I can do a number of other things in related to, to this approach. I'm, I'm interested in ethnicity, of course, and how ethnic relationships change over time, what kind of categories lose salience, and become more salient over time in these types of societies. Um, so that's, let's say, the main project I'm working on. I have some smaller issues. So after this, let's say, bigger project on Rwanda, I had to get out of it a little bit. So I started, I was, I'm also involved in a project now on something totally different, mainly migration um, with a focus on Tanzania. So why people migrate to small towns, secondary towns, or to the capital city. And I got involved because actually it's also life history uh, approach where through life histories, I'm trying to understand the changes in people's lives, the decisions that, that people make. And then there are a number of smaller projects, uh, something on sexual violence in Congo. Uh, but let's say this, this evolution over time of the experience of trust, um, of fear, security, political representation, that's one of the main things I'm doing now. Well, I certainly look forward to um, hearing about um, about how all of those projects, which none of which sounds small, um, uh, evolve. And uh, and uh, yeah, I really am looking forward to, to following your work. Um, so thank you again for uh, for coming on the podcast, um, listeners. Uh, we've had the uh, pleasure of uh, talking today with uh, Professor Ingelare. Uh, of the um, whose book uh, Inside Rwanda's Gachacha Courts: Seeking Justice After Genocide is published by the University of Wisconsin Press, and we will speak to you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.